Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine. We're chatting to the author Louise Candlish. Uh, She's the author of the crime and thriller Book of the Year uh, at the British Book Awards a couple of months ago. That's for Our House, uh, which sold over 200,000 copies, over 200,000 copies across all platforms. Uh, We'll talk more about that idea and why that was kind of a game changer for her. You can find out how she's been thinking and talking about pretty much three books at the same time for the last few months. And also, Louise has written 12 novels. Uh, You can find out why she almost gave up midway through those 12 novels and why she carried on. I just was very frustrated. I felt I wasn't having very much success. Um, It just felt like I was a bit of an also-ran. But then, as I was saying earlier about the new ideas starting to obsess you, I I could sense that I was obsessed with this idea for our house and and new angles were occurring to me and I could sort of tell it could be special. And I started it out of contract, which, um, which a lot of readers think that means out of contractual obligation, but it doesn't. It means you haven't got a contract, you haven't got any money, no one's paying you. The last book didn't do particularly well so you're not getting royalties from the last book you're literally um you know back to square one but it felt very freeing and very very exciting that's all on the way stay there more from louise candlish this week on writer's routine Yes, hello. Welcome to Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek uh, inside the working day of some of the most successful writers around. And we've got a proper successful one today. We'll talk more about her in just a sec. Uh, My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. If you're new to the podcast uh, and and if you're enjoying what you're listening to, um, make sure that you do try and give us a review over on Apple Podcasts, if that is uh, how you're listening right now. Um, If you're not, don't worry about it. If you don't like it, Please press stop. Don't worry about doing any reviews. No, nothing like that. Thank you. Uh, On Apple Podcasts, though, find Writer's Routine uh, and just write a few nice words about what we're doing. Also, make sure you include where you're listening to us, what country, what city you're in. It just blows my mind to think that this rabble that I'm putting together in my bedroom is helping affect the writing days of so many people all around the world. I love that. If you've got the time, please do leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Now, this week we're chatting to the author Louise Candlish. As I've already said, her last book, Our House, was phenomenally successful. It beat 
a whole host of some of the biggest names around uh, to win the crime and thriller book of the year at the British Book Awards a few months ago. It sold over 200,000 copies across all platforms. It's still going great guns. And we find out why she thinks it was so successful and also why it almost wasn't. Her new book is called Those People and we'll talk about how she wrote that with all the pressure of the success of Our House weighing on her shoulders. Now, hers is a writer's routine that properly works around her life. I mean, her daughter's growing up uh, has changed her day of work recently. We'll hear about that. Uh, We'll also talk about how she lays her clues and twists and threads them together and how she comes back and changes her work after editor's notes. I mean, I, I often think that's kind of strange. Like, how must it feel to be a writer? You pass it off to someone at your publishers so they can flick through it and tell you what they think. And then they come back to you with a whole host of notes, things that you need to change. I mean, how does that feel, having to change your characters, what you've written, based on someone else's opinion? Also, we'll get a top writing tip from one of the best kids authors around too. First, let's get into it with Louise Candlish, uh, the author of the brand new book, Those People. And we start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, at the moment, I'm writing in my living room on the sofa. And so I see on the right hand side, I see a huge window. It's an old Victorian house, a lovely window with old glass and probably quite sort of creased and dirty curtains as I'm not a great spring cleaner. And I will see piles and piles of my own admin and books and proof copies and manuscripts and cuttings. Um, And then I'll probably also see the cat who sits next to me. Are you at your own desk at this point? Are you sat down in a chair? I'm on the sofa. Yeah, it's literally as if I'm watching TV. I would be in the same position. It's very relaxed. Then I have my laptop in front of me. Any art on the walls? I mean, this grand Victorian dusty room that you said, any any (laughs) arts there to kind of liven the place up? Actually, there is, yeah. I have um, uh, um, one of my favourite things is a photograph by Patrick Litchfield of Talitha Getty and um, her husband, Jean-Paul Getty, on um, the rooftop in Marrakesh. Very famous fashion photograph, which I think was done for Vogue. And um, it's um, it's so the polar opposite of my life. It's really hilarious to look at it. You know, super glamorous, exotic, beautiful people. You know, far too much money. Um, and I'm usually sitting there in you know holy pajamas and <laughs> with you know like a kind of molding coffee cup by my side. If you were to take inspiration from anything around you, have you got a window in the room? Are you looking out onto a? Yes, I'm not. I'm not looking out, um, but I can see the um, you know the sort of inner suburban London street because I live in um, in South London in Zone Two. My books are set a little bit further out, but it's a, it's the same sort of vibe. I can see. You know, the whole, um, you know, we can see each other through our windows. You know, you can watch your neighbours or you're very aware of what's going on. So I'm, I'm aware of street life. There's the, you know, there's the London plane trees. There's all the parking disputes. There's the delivery vans. <laughs> it's a similar-ish vibe to the um, settings I try to create, but maybe a bit more down market because my, my house is nowhere near as posh as some of the houses that I have my characters live in. <laughs> well, well, very quickly, why do you think that is? I mean, I suppose we'll get into this in just a sec when we talk more about plot. Uh, but the famous adage, write what you know, is, mm. is slightly true for you. I mean, you're doing a very Stephen King thing, not ranging too far out of Maine, um, of South London. That's but right. Why are yeah. you... But why are you always pitching up and you're writing people who are perhaps 
on a higher social level to yourself. Why do you think that is? Um, I think I'm kind of um, critiquing them. I think I'm kind of, you know, um, trying to burst their bubble a little bit. I mean, some people think I represent those very posh middle class people, but other people, other readers can see quite quickly that I'm in fact, you know, I've got a few sharp things to say (laughs) about the way they conduct themselves. And it's kind of somewhere in the middle, I suppose. But um, I just feel that that's a world I can understand psychologically. And in a psychological thriller or a suspense book, you really have to have the psychology right. You know, it has to, it can't be implausible that someone would would be um, provoked to violence over parking. I mean, it, it, it's got it's got to really be true, and I've got to have seen it happen. Um, and so, I just know that world really well for better or worse, and so it's very easy. But earlier in my career, I wasn't writing about South London. I was um, taking books, you know, to different islands and and various um, locations in Italy and France. Um, It's only the last few that I've set locally, and I think I just enjoy it so much I can't leave. Maybe I will with the next (laughs) book or the one after. Um, And in fact, the book I'm writing at the moment, I go a bit closer to the river. It's more a kind of um, Thames story rather than deepest, darkest South London. But I'm just so um, in love with South London and I'm really intrigued by the mix you get there and the fact that that my bit of South London, South East London, is still very up and coming. So you've got a lot of ambitious people. You've got a lot of um, aspirational people and where you have those sorts of characteristics you get a lot of conflict and clashing and tribes and it's just fascinating you mentioned the next book um if i were to walk into the room that you write in right now as you're midway through getting it out there would i see any clues to the subject you're writing about have you got post-it notes all over the walls have you got anything that gives you inspiration for that specific story maybe a giant whiteboard where you're scrolling on no i'm in in that respect i don't think i'm typical at all i don't have post-it notes i don't have a mood board um, sometimes that will come a bit later, actually, and I think, oh, that would have been handy at the beginning, um, <laughs> as I, you know, put together some ideas for for the cover. Say, um, you might see something. You might see a little something. So, for instance, at the what you would see on the floor, because I noticed noticed that there when I left this morning, is a timetable for the river bus, the Thames River bus. That would be a clue to you, what might be going on in the story. Um, so there are little clues. There'll be um, information leaflets. Um, timetables, um, you know, sort of things that I've picked up from my research. Um, but you certainly wouldn't see anything formal like a great arc of post-its plotting out all the cliffhangers. You wouldn't see that at all. That would be in a um, Word document on my laptop. And I know that you've been fantastically busy recently, but, yes. you know, herring all around the country, winning awards as well. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, how easy do you find it writing uh, not on your sofa in South East London? Uh, do, can you write in a hotel room? Do you write on trains often? Yes, yeah, I can. I can write anywhere, but I need to. Um, I need to not have conversation distracting me. I can't. I can't sit on a, a train with chattering people. I would have to have earplugs or, or music to to drown them out because I'm my ear is very attuned to dialogue. And I can kind of pick it out over any other noise. And so if I'm somewhere with other people, I would find it very hard. And I know lots of writers write in cafes. I find that impossible. 
I just listen to other people's conversations, which isn't to say that's not useful anyway, because that might spark an idea for a future story or character. But in terms of actually trying to get some work done, ideally, I, it's fairly tranquil. Um, but, you know, needs must. And if you have a deadline, you work wherever you are. And if you are touring and you're on trains, you know, you, you, you will work. And, you know, if you're with your publicist, she'll have work to do as well. She or he will have work to do as well. And so you can get a bit done. Um, and so, yes, of course I can. Yeah, it's, I don't I don't have to be on my own, <laughs> own sofa with my own cat. Could be someone else's sofa and someone else's cat. The last couple of years, it's changed a little bit as my daughter's um, got a bit older. I used to always do the school run and then I used to walk the dog and then I would start at 10 o'clock. So 10 a.m. was my start time. But recently our dog died, unfortunately. And my daughter doesn't doesn't need me um, chauffeuring her anymore. And so I'm probably on the sofa um, ready to work at about 8.30. So I'll get up and I'll have, you know, had breakfast with the family and, you know, had a couple of coffees. Um, I'll probably have checked my email while I'm, you know, pre-8 o'clock to see if there's anything that, you know, I, that I need to do before I start working. By working, I mean writing, but of course, you know, there's huge numbers of other tasks involved, as you know. Um, So probably about 8.30, I'll start writing. And then um, I'll I'll try and be disciplined and I'll try and do a thousand words a day. Um, And that's when I'm writing a first draft. So all of this is to do with a first draft when you can be quite, um, you can impose a structure on it. And then I'll break probably for lunch. I might watch something on on the laptop or I might go for a walk and do a few more hours. And then my daughter will come home from school and I'll catch up with her. Um, And then if I'm really um, close to a deadline, I'll then do an evening shift as well. So you say you try to get through about a thousand words a day. Is that is that the lower limit? Will you on a particularly bad day, perhaps where they're just not coming? Will you? really push on with it and just get a thousand words done or or are you quite flexible in being able to leave yourself and think well the ideas aren't coming maybe I'll just rest it for for the day I'm flexible so the way I um, I say a thousand words a day but I actually um, set out a work plan for myself at the beginning of a book and it's a weekly word count because I know what I'm like. I know I will have a day when I'm really in the mood and it's a, I'm enjoying writing the scene and I might do 2,000 words. And then I might have a day when there's masses of distractions. I've got lots of, you know, sort of um, other things to do, like, you know, taking the car in an MOT or um, something to do with my personal life. And I'll know I won't be able to get a full day's work in. So I tend to have a weekly um, goal for myself Um, And I'm really flexible about it. I have a rule that you don't beat yourself up. You don't get anxious about it. If you have a bad week, then you make it up the next week. I mean, ultimately, you have this one deadline. And so long as you meet it, no one needs to know what what you did. (laughs) No one needs to know, you know, whether you did it all in the last two weeks, like someone cramming for an exam or whether actually you had it all nailed in the first month. Uh, But You mentioned earlier on how one of the things that you're quite, that you need to tell your story is you know almost silence you need concentration you need to lock yourself away with just your story is is there anything else that you require to be able to get the words down Uh, a final little quirk an eccentricity something you know a coffee at a certain time every day you need to be using a specific word processor anything that that just helps you get your ideas down I think I I I, it's very prosaic but I do need to feel like I've got an empty slate 
So I do have to check all of my email and social media and feel like I've kind of done a bit of that before I start. Otherwise, I feel like that's sort of, you know, niggling and I've, and I've got to keep checking because the great distraction for us all now is, you know, the notifications and the constant, you know, you could be on social media all day not doing anything else. Um, and so I like to have to feel like I've I've got a clean slate before I start. So um, so sitting down and writing isn't the first thing I do. Um, and then the coffees, it's its not re- really a ritualistic thing at all, but I will need constant coffee <laughs> or I won't, my, my brain doesn't work. I mean, I'm definitely addicted. Well, without nitpicking too much further, if you were to analyse your, I don't know, five, six hours of writing a day, uh, do you find that y- you work in bursts, uh, uh, you know, 90 minutes surges and then you kind of, you find yourself being distracted by things? Uh, how do those hours work for you? Well, it's, it's kind of different each time. It's hard to say that there's a standard answer to that. It could be that it's just all done beautifully in an hour, or it could be that it's quite a painful process. I'm very much a kind of get something down um, kind of writer, so I'm not kind of polishing each sentence as I go. I would, I'd like to get the scene, the bare bones of the scene down, and then I go over it layering and layering and layering so um so it probably is fairly consistent if say say i'm writing a scene that's literally how i will do it there will be you know kind of skeleton with a bit of dialogue and i'll know what's happening in the scene and then i'll i'll go back to the beginning of the scene and then i'll go through it improving it cutting it adding to it Um, and so it's a layering process and that's just within the one day and then there's multiple times that i'll read it and edit it after that those people is a really good one to um, to talk about because I actually began it on January the 1st or January the 2nd so I literally can do you a calendar year of what's going to happen this year so um, my deadline is um, end of July so that is, is that seven months that's seven months if I'm starting on the 1st of January that's that's quite tight for me I'll, I'm finding that hard so that will be the deadline for the first draft to go to my editors um, but within that time I have a new book out so um, I have a book out at the end of June. So that comes with a bit of touring, launch, media, all kinds of stuff, you know, nice things like this. That's all got to be slotted in as well. And then there's also my previous book, Our House, which is still a current book in the stores, winning awards, as you said. And, and you know, I'm talking about it a lot. So there's so I've got my deadline for the end of July, but it, that's not the only thing I'm doing. So it's really, really stressful and tough. Um, until that point and then of course if I feel that um, the book isn't in you know isn't a high enough quality I'll talk to editors and I'll get a get an extension but I still at this moment um, I'd be working towards that end of July August I will then try and go on holiday at school holidays I'll try and go on holiday and what I found in recent years is that there's no such thing as a holiday really you know there might be media things I'm doing from holiday or there might be um, questions from editors or they may turn around the manuscript very quickly and, and want me to get started on, on the next draft. But say um, say I do get a holiday, and that could be two or three weeks, towards the end of August, I will then get editor's notes back on the new book. And they um, are usually quite extensive with me. I'm a very collaborative. Um, I really need my editor's input. And so I will know that there is a, a big um, rewrite to do. And so I will then do that probably throughout September, end of August, September, and then I'll, I'll um, deliver the next draft. And that might come back two or three more times. And then by the end of the year, we've got the book 
you know, in the can. And that then comes out the following July. That will come out in in um, in oh, usually June. summer. Yeah, right. yeah. In this year it's June. Last year it was April. So it's cutting it quite fine. I mean, I'm you know they they it's probably you know as fine as they like to cut it with me. It raises a few questions. So I mean, this year particularly is probably one like no other for you mm. because of the success of our house. You're so you're still talking about. Our house, which you would, yes. have, would have written two, three years ago now. Yes, yeah, started you've, in 2016, um, I think. Yeah. You've got the new one, Those People, that's out, well, when this will be released. Yes. Um, you're writing a new book for next year. How yeah. do you find that muddle? Because, you know, psychological thriller tends to, I mean, you, you do... Uh, uh, you know, differ with the craft, but psychological thriller tends to be of a of a certain sort. Yes. How do you find with all of those ideas and all of those plots whirring around your brain? You've got to remember what you were doing, and you've got to be thinking of stuff new as well. How do you find that mashup? It's quite hard. Um, I think I don't know if it's true of all authors, but I am most interested in the project that I'm writing. That's the one I'm in love with. I'm really close to the characters. Um, you know, that's that they're my favorite days when I know I'm going to be writing my current project. So the others I've kind of slightly forgotten that, you know, the kind of intricacies of the plot. So if, um, say, I was doing an interview about our house tomorrow, I would have to quickly speed read it tonight again to remind myself of, you know, the sort of minor character names, the little the little things that were important to me when I was writing it, the, the clues and the, you know, the favorite scenes. Um, so it's just it gets eliminated from your mind once you've kind of finished writing it. And so you have to constantly remind yourself what those books, you know, what they meant to you and what, what people are responding to when they're reading them. But your real passion is for the one that you're writing because um, that's your live project and that's that that's your you know creative impulse. So that's the past. Then looking ahead to the future. So when you've. Uh, towards the back end of the year when you're writing your second, your third, your fourth drafts perhaps, yeah. but you know that come January, I've probably got to start another book. Uh, how do you find the, 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 the process then in the latter part of the year of having to force through an idea for a story that you're going to start writing again in a few months time? Well, it doesn't feel like you like anything forced. That's the great thing. And, you know, touch wood, because so far, what has happened is that an idea will surface and I'll think, ooh, I think that could be the next book. And I'll just, you know, just keep it there bubbling and, and perhaps write it down so I don't forget it, as has happened. Um, and then I'll start to, it will start to kind of build on a on a kind of lower level in my mind. And so by the time it comes to, to delivering the final draft of the one I'm working on, I'm excited and ready to go and I can quite quickly... Um, start to think about pitching it to my editors because um, if you're within a contract you need to you need the approval mm. of your publishers before you you know start writing and um, so so far it's all worked quite well and that the idea has been ready I've never been you know it's never been the day before I'm supposed to pitch an idea and I haven't had one yet I've never it's never been that bad there's usually been something that it's, it's often an obsession or it might be something that I've read and and I've started. I can feel myself becoming obsessed, and then I'll know that that is the next book. So thirteenth novel, we've said. Uh, what have you learned about your writing routine and how you tell stories along the way? Because I would imagine how you told your very first book, which was Prickly Heat, which was uh, you know a few years ago now. I, I'd imagine your writing routine 
has changed considerably since then. What have you learned about the way you tell stories and how you can tell them better? Well, they've become so much more complicated. So when I think back to those first books, they were quite simple stories. There weren't really any subplots. Um, I told them chronologically. There weren't any flashbacks. They were simple and linear. And so, um, you know, in retrospect, they were they were easier. But of course, I wasn't very experienced, so I still found them quite hard. Now I'm writing very complicated books structurally. And so um, so the main thing I've learned is that I absolutely can't just start working and expect to get something on the page. I've got to have planned what I'm going to do. And the plot has to be quite intricately planned with a thriller. Um, and so I've just learned to plan properly and that saves me a lot of time. It's, it's more efficient to do it that way. Was that a conscious, a conscious decision of yours to uh, make your books more intricate, more complicated, perhaps harder to tell? Or is that just something that comes with a genre that you're now working in? I think it has happened organically. I think that I've grown older and I'm um, probably a darker person, a more cynical person. As you say, it's I'm now firmly in a genre that, that you know, it is a puzzle for readers. It's supposed to be a, a puzzle or um, a challenge for readers with clues and, and so on. And so um, it, it, it has to be constructed rather than um, free-flowing. It has to be a constructed puzzle. Um, but it has happened organically. I mean, people say, oh, did you consciously change genre with um, our house? But that just wasn't at all how it felt to me. The The previous books felt actually similar-ish. Um, but what I did try and do was raise my game. So I wasn't sort of changing genre, but I thought I'm gonna, I'm, I, I was about to give up writing and I had the idea for our house. And I thought, well, I'm gonna go out with a bang. This is gonna be better than anything I've ever written. And I'm gonna try and make it better than anything I've read recently as well. Um, and so I, I consciously raised my game, but I didn't consciously change genre. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
We'll get more from Louise in just a sec. Very quickly, though, I want to say a massive thank you if you've supported the show over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you like what we do, if you want to say thanks, maybe give a bit back. That's what you need to do. Just send a few dollars a month our way, like the price of a cup of coffee, the price of a pint of beer. Just pledge it to the show every month. That really helps what we're doing. It helps with the travel. It helps sorting things out with the authors. And most importantly, it helps us bring you as many episodes as regularly as we can. Uh, If you've already pledged, again, thank you so much. Uh, I've got all the rewards in the flat. I'm getting ready to send them out. Um, uh, I've got bookmarks. I've got badges. Very nice they are too. I spent a long time. I'm not a graphic designer, by the way. It was quite tough for me to suddenly be thrown thrown into that world but I think I've done a pretty good job if you are due one of those please fire an email with where you want it to be sent uh, over to the website uh, writersroutine.com there's a contact page there get in touch through that Um, and and if you want a badge a bookmark if you want me to ask your questions to writers in the future and get your own exclusive Patreon dedicated episode and it's really appreciated I promise anything that you can give goes an extremely long way Uh, just find us and support the show over at Patreon com forward slash writers routine. Hi, I'm Abby Elphinstone. My book Rumble Star is out now, and my writing tip is um, to not rush on writing a book. Um, you've only got one shot when it goes to an agent, so make sure that it's your best shot before you send it. If you've got any writing tips that have really helped your day, by the way, uh, you can fire them over to me and I'll share it with our Writers Routine community here. Uh, just send it to the website writersroutine.com. Right, let's get back to it with Louise Candlish, the author of the phenomenally successful Our House. She's back with a brand new book following up on the hype. It's called Those People. Uh, we talk more about that story in this half of the chat. We talk about the road map of it, how much she knows before she sets off and how willing she is to drift down side plots that may come to her from nowhere. We also talk more about her characterisation, how she gets to know uh, all the people that she's writing about and we pick things up talking more about the time when she seriously was willing to give it all up. I just was very frustrated, I felt I wasn't having very much success Um, I wasn't particularly happy with my publisher at the time. I felt there wasn't, you know, an enormous amount of marketing budget. Um, And I wasn't wasn't hugely happy with the way the books were being published. I wasn't getting very many translation deals. Um, It just felt like I was a bit of an also-ran. And, and I thought, well, actually, you know, I'd really like to have some, su- some success at something. And so um, I, I thought, well, I'll do something else. But then, as I was saying earlier about the new ideas starting to obsess you, I, I could sense that I was obsessed with this idea for our house. And, and new angles were occurring to me. And I could sort of tell it could be special. So I thought, right, I'll do this. And um, and I started it out of contract, which um, which a lot of readers think that means out of contractual obligation, but it doesn't. It means you haven't got a contract, you haven't got any money, no one's paying you. The last book didn't do particularly well, so you're not getting royalties from the last book. You're literally, um, you know, back to square one. Um, but it felt very freeing and very, very exciting. Um, I, I promise we will talk about the new book in just a second, but just one last thing about our house, because because it has had such success and it obviously came at quite a vital moment for you. You, you said there that you sensed you were on to something special. Mm. What was that tipping point, that moment where you thought, hang on, I might be on to something with this one. Do you remember what it was that made you I... think this was could be something that was different to what you'd done before? 
I knew it was different um, from anything I'd done before because I could because the the structure was so different and the there was a, a crime at the heart of the book which I'd never read about in fiction before so I knew that was new I knew this was a uh, property fraud had not been um, had not been the theme of any big big thrillers so I knew that was new um, but I think the moment when I thought it might be different and, and, and special compared to my to my previous work was when I read back say the first quarter and it felt like it had a really strong voice and voice is such an important part of writing and it's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned over structure and over character just the narrator's voice and both of the narrators were first person um, narrators and both are writing no one writing in the past tense one in the in the present tense it was um, it just felt I felt like these characters were really powerful voices and I hadn't really had that feeling with my books before and so I thought well if I feel like this reading back you know I, I feel really you know quite tingly about them I feel like they're real people and I'm really worried about them maybe readers will have the same reaction. <laughs> and then moving into the, the new book, so those people, you would have started writing this before all the success that came your way from our house. Yes. Uh, how did you know how to carry on writing it, this, this new genre, this new style that you, were, that you were attempting? How did you know that you were onto a winner and that you were going to carry on with this? Well, I didn't, um, I, I didn't want to do the same. I didn't want it to be sort of, you know, another our house. I wanted to do something slightly different. And I think with, with writing novels, you are always reinventing the wheel because you want to do something different yourself to, you know, to keep yourself interested. And so this time, what I wanted to do, I was kind of inspired by um, Murder on the Orient Express, actually, although that is in no way <laughs> a spoiler as to what happens in those people. But what I wanted to set up was a group of characters who had who could equally be the culprit of the crime there's a death on the street it's a group of neighbors there's a death and I wanted there to be um, several characters who um, could be guilty of this crime um, and you know to be genuinely for, for readers to be torn as to who it was going to be and so I kind of was very inspired by Agatha Christie with which with this one which was you know I can't say at all about our house I had different inspiration with Our House, I was very inspired by John Lanchester's Capital. It was very much in the tradition of Gone Girl with the he said, she said, um, you know, estranged couple at the heart of it. Whereas those people, I, I, I kind of went back to Agatha Christie, I suppose. And those have got the same vibe as Our House. The way it's structured felt very different. So I was doing something new. And so that's how I, um, you know, that's how I found the, the time and the interest because it was incredibly distracting during that period. It was really hard to write those people. So you've got this inspiration there, this notion that this is what I want, the flavour that I want my, my story to, to have. Talk to me about the very first moment that the actual idea for what became those people cropped into your mind. Um, I'm not sure that I can pinpoint the exact moment. It was more a kind of um, growing awareness that I was seeing a lot of news stories about terrible neighbours. And I personally was clicking on them because I found them so fascinating. And um, and I thought, you know, that, is it me or is 
is the world getting crazier? You know, why? what are all of these, you know, terrible conflicts between neighbours and people, you know, kind of threatening to kill each other over a, a boundary fence being an inch too high or, you know, a tree being being chopped down? Um, and so that it was more of a growing awareness. And, um, and then I started, um, you know, sort of saving some of the stories. And then I realised, oh, I'm going to do a neighbourhood murder because... Um, this is definitely a new thing in this new, um, you know, in the, the, the society we live in now, we're all very, we're, we're less tolerant, I would say. We all feel very entitled that we should live our own best life. And you hear that term all the time. It's all about, you know, my things, things being as I want them to be. And if other people don't happen to agree, then, you know, screw them, because this is my life that has to be lived best. And so I thought, well, if you transfer that to a neighborhood where traditionally it's about cooperation and, um, you know, everyone um, tolerating each other and live and let live, there's going to be a conflict there because people want their perfect house. I mean, we read constantly about lives being ruined by um, neighbors' renovations. And I've had my own life ruined by a neighbor's renovation, actually, which was another another little thing that I stored away when that was happening. I thought, oh, this would be this would be good in a novel. This guy drove me absolutely nuts. Um, and so it was more um, it was a it wasn't a, a single moment with those people. Then what happens next? So how do you transfer that into a into characters into a plot i mean you mentioned earlier that your your planning and plotting process is quite thorough and extensive when you've got that initial idea how do you begin the workings of turning this into a novel that will be read a year and seven months later well i had a period probably when i was finishing our house when i was starting to think about the different characters because this is a a neighborhood book it's a kind of ensemble book it's not like our house with just these two two central characters there are seven or eight characters who you get to know quite well on lowland way which is the street in those people and so i needed a little bit of time to percolate the various characters and they needed to be sufficiently different from one another. I'd started to be quite interested in sibling rivalry. And so I thought, well, I have these two brothers living next door to each other, but one of them's the kingpin and the other one's the deputy. And how's that going to pan out? And how do their wives feel about this and their kids? And um, and I've, I'm also interested at the moment in, um, you know, seeing how society treats older people. And, you know, ageism has become a huge problem. It's far worse than it used to be. And I, you know, to, I, I thought I'll have an older character and she's 60 years old. And it's not that old, really, in today's, um, you know, in terms of life expectancy. But she is treated as invisible. And, um, you know, she's she's got her own quiet crisis going on. And then it seemed, you know, the logical, only right that the direct next door neighbours to the bad neighbours would be a young couple with a baby. Mm. Because what could be worse when you're a new parent than to not be able to sleep and for your child not to be able to sleep? And so that was a no brainer. I was always going to have a, a young couple with, a, with their first baby next door to um, the bad guys. Um, and so it took a little while to, to get the characters together. I always knew um, who was going to die. I wasn't quite sure initially um, how I would have them die. Um, and I talked with my editors a little bit about that because the, the, the method of death that I had in mind, they felt was perhaps a little bit too similar to something that had happened in our house. And so, you know, I went for a long walk with my husband, brainstormed ways in which neighbors could die. Um, and again, it's got to be plausible, not silly, um, not too melodramatic. 
and in fact he came up with with uh, um, the death um, and I'm really pleased with it if you can say that about death no that's okay that's fine <laughs> quite often on the show writers will describe to me their timeline what they know about their story as a as a road map almost and some writers will know exactly what points they're going to hit, what service stations they're going to stop off at. Others might know the beginning, the middle, and where they're going to end up. And others simply get in the car and they decide where they're going, uh, where the road takes them. Mm. What do you know before you sit down to write? Um, I love that analogy. I think I would know the towns and cities that I'm passing through, but I definitely wouldn't know the service stations yet. Um, and I also would be prepared after so many years of doing it for a breakdown or, you know, picking up a hitchhiker or something. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I you know, I expect the unexpected. I do. But this metaphor is uh, getting I, away from yeah, me. It is. <laughs> so let's bring it back to your storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that I know the bare bones. I know there are two deaths in those people. I knew who was going to die. And after various discussions, I knew how they were going to die. I knew who who the culprits are um and i also knew what the ending was going to be you mentioned a second ago how well you know your characters you knew ex- you know you knew you're gonna have the bad couple the young couple the old person did that exist in a physical form you sat there brainstorming writing notes and drawing up quite a comprehensive background of these characters no i don't do that i know lots of authors do that and i think that is a that's a really good thing to do I'm usually quite impatient to get going, so I kind of get to know them through their dialogue. And um, I do sometimes I'll I'll sort of think and conscious I'll, I'll sit and consciously think what do they look like. Um, although I don't like to give an enormous amount of physical description because I like readers to to build up their own picture of what someone looks like. A couple of details um, help anchor the character for me. Um, but no, I kind of I find I discover the characters as I'm writing and then also through the editing process, because as I say, there might be five drafts with a book of mine. And so with the first draft, I might have um, editors saying, well, actually, he's quite one dimensional. And I think, you know, I think we need to know a bit more about him. So I might, you know, at that stage still have a character who isn't, you know, entirely um, flesh and blood and so it gets built up and then you know you might change something psychologically as well in the second or third draft and so that will have an, a, an impact on the character so it's a re- it's a kind of layering process so, so, sorry to interject uh, interject you said that perhaps your, your, your editor might come back and say this character's too one-dimensional, mm. we need to thicken mm. them, we need to flesh them out. As a writer, then what do you do? I mean, y- you can only understand your character as much as you can. Does that not feel a bit forced? You've got to sit there and write in this 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 backstory about this character that you don't really understand yet? It's not so much the backstory, it's just getting, it's just, you know the characters. I think that's the, that's the distinction. You know the characters really well, but but you're not necessarily expressing them sufficiently to the reader. So it's very easy for you to then add some more detail or um, slightly edit their dialogue so you're learning something more about them because they do exist in a three-dimensional form to you. It's just that you haven't successfully portrayed that on the page. So it's not like the character's a sketch in my mind and then it comes across as a sketch. He's real in my mind, but my editors have said, well, I'm not getting a true sense of him so I'll then you know dig back down to what I know about him 
and I'll try and bring it with the next draft. You mentioned earlier on as well that you have this weekly, almost a weekly word count, a weekly yes. skeleton plan that you want to get done. Uh, what? How much do you know about what you're going to be writing day by day? So when you sit there on a Tuesday morning, you know, your daughter's gone to school, it's you and the cat. How much do you know about <laughs> those words that you're going to try and write that day? Um, I normally start, this is quite quite typical, I think, I normally start by having a look at what I did the previous day. Um, or if I wasn't very successful the previous day, I'll, you know, sort of launch myself into a bit that I know is quite successful. Um, and I can I can keep on going from that point. Um, so I, I'm, I'm likely to be doing the scene that follows the one I did did the day before. But um, you know that's really simplifying. I might I might go back to the beginning and start reading, um, and then find myself kind of um, developing something that I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's quite a loose thing. I haven't got a strict. I have a strict word count and I have a strict schedule but I don't have a strict order in which I'm going to write things what's the schedule very quickly is is that just when when things need to be done yes that's that's the schedule for my first draft so in the case of uh, the book I'm writing at the moment I started in January and I know I've got to try and finish a draft by the end of July so that will be my week by week writing schedule um, that I try and stick to but that's that's dates and word counts that's not um, plot points like, it's not plot points okay. uh, the, the thing with psychological thriller and particularly yours because with the award that you won I, I think it was noted that you are doing something different with the genre but form is quite important the way that you're telling the story and that you are doing something new uh, and, and you know it starts here very quickly you know, house to house inquiries by the Met Police. That's how your book starts with um, with reports that the police are getting uh, as they travel up and down researching this crime. How much do you think about the form that your stories are taking, switching between narratives, the the, the, the structure of sentences? I think about the, um, the the form and structure very carefully because I tend to write in quite a slow burn way, building up the story. I I try to have a structure where um, you know that something terrible has happened right from the onset rather than um, rather than having to wait for it to happen halfway through the book. So the, so house to house inquiries is a perfect way of doing that. You um, you start straight away, you know there's been a death, you're told that in the first line. Um, but you don't know who's died, you don't know you know what the circumstances are and that's gradually built up. And then you go back in time and see and meet all the characters and see how it led to this terrible event. So, um, so in that respect, I think very, very carefully about it because in a thriller, you have to keep people interested. Um, and my thrillers were, are definitely on the um, on the end of the, you know, the slow burn end of the thriller spectrum. This is not a kind of, you know, Dan Brown, there's a cliffhanger at the end of, you know, every page. I'm the opposite of that on the thriller spectrum. So I do, so I have to, so, so readers have to know that there's something intriguing going on to carry on reading. Otherwise it's, it's a drama that they're following and they don't know what's going to happen. In terms of the, um, the actual sort of phrase making and the sentence structure, that's all, I, I just do that very naturally and then um, I'll polish it up as I go. Last question, um, and it's about our house, I'm afraid. That's all right. You know, one last time, one crime and thriller book of the year at the British Book Awards. It sold over 200,000 copies in the UK across platforms. Why do you think it's captured the attention like none of your books have done before? 
I think it began with the subject matter, the the property theme. Um, it's a property thriller, it's been called property porn thriller. And in, in the States, they call it real estate noir. They've called my books. And it, it, it was one of the first ones. It was the first one to get attention. Um, I, so I, there was an element of, of the zeitgeist there, I think. Um, and then once people you know, heard about the book and, and read it, then they sort of see the other things that are quite innovative about it. But I think um, that it's that central idea of, um, you know, woman comes home to find strangers have bought her house without her consent. And so it is that central idea. And, you know, that's, as, uh, as I'm sure you've heard um, in writer's tips many times, you know, you, you have to have that, that single line great idea in a book, a hook. That, um, that everyone remembers. And then they, you know, they'll say to their friends, oh my God, I just read this book and this woman's house was stolen um, from under her and you know, two million pounds. Um, and so it's the central idea, I think, that, that caught the imagination. And then once people read it, I think it, they, you know, they saw that there's a lot of um, discussion points in it and, and it is quite innovative structurally. So there's a lot of meat on the bones once you get going, but people will have heard of it because of that property theft hook. And that is it for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to Louise Candlish uh, for giving me the time. I know she's incredibly busy. What with uh, We've said it so much in the episode already, but I'll say it one more time. Uh, Our House, if you've not read it yet, you need to get on it. You might be the only person that hasn't. It's phenomenally successful. It won an award at the British Book Awards a couple of months ago. Uh, you really need to crack on with it. It's an electric story, much like her brand new one, Those People, which you can find more about over at writersroutine.com. Uh, now, the next episode of the show will be with... Uh, it's a brilliant chat, by the way, just extremely free-spirited. It's with someone who was bored in the summer before she was heading off to university. So instead of, like, travelling and doing a gap yard like everybody else, um, she rode the Mongol Derby, one of the most fearsome and challenging horse races there is across an entire country. She didn't just ride it, she won the whole thing. And we'll talk more about her memoir uh, in the next episode of Writer's Routine. I say next episode because to tell you the truth, I don't really know when it's going to come out. Um, I'm away for the next couple of weeks, going to Glastonbury, I know, and then New York. Hopefully I should have one with you next week, but I can't promise anything. Uh, so just keep across all of our socials to keep in check with it, really. We are at Writer's Pod over on Twitter, and it's Writer's Routine on Instagram. You can find out everything, too, on our website, writersroutine.com. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to say thank you with a little bit of money, I'd love that. Just support the show and pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, you'll get some merch to go with that as well, so you don't come away empty handed. Uh, thank you so much for giving us a listen. We will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>